0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Just south of Hamilton, you'll find the small, unsung village of Matangi. As you drive into the village along Matangi Road, notice the row of seven substantial old character homes that are all the same design. Over the other side of the road, you'll notice another two. They are constructed of poured concrete with large pitched roofs and gables. These aren't your normal employees' dwellings. They're homes that have been designed with passion. In Matangi, they're affectionately known as the Seven Sisters and the Twin Brothers. Along with the beautiful Bryant homestead in Tofari Road, they are the work of an architect whose iconic architecture is recognized in many other towns of Waikato and Manawatu. His name? Frederick Daniel. Matangi is the cornerstone for much of our dairy industry, making any building to survive that era till now. Precious to preserve. Let us take you on Martangi's extraordinary journey, arguably the most significant industrial site in New Zealand's history. Martangi's March to Daring Manufacture. Father and son Harry and Andrew Mowbray focus on retrieving that history, researching files that end up in the hands of the industrial giant Fonterra. Studying its growth from humble origins, they trace the influence of Matangi pioneers whose vision kick-started a new industry. Its heritage they celebrate by encouraging business people, new arrivals in the community to settle Invest their future. Make Matangi the place with history to tell. This is the story adapted for broadcast as Historic Souvenirs on Free FM 89.0. Proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. The first factory. The story of Matangi manufacturing dates back to a creamery the place where milk and cream come from surrounding dairy farms to be made into butter and cheese. It's a daunting project to find the fragments of information that reconstruct the succession of buildings handling milk collected off Waikato farms taken to Matangi to distribute or process on the Matangi site. Henry Reynolds has several successful creameries to his credit. In the 1880s, looking to expand, he invests a small fortune in a venture that proves profitable as a butter factory at Pukikura. It's the first butter factory in the Waikato. It's high quality, efficient, economic and hygienic, poised to scale up. Soon, by securing loyal supply of milk from surrounding farmers, The enterprise moves from being a cottage industry, small-volume enterprise, to a greater vision for the future. The Pukikura Butter Factory begins to churn out its first industrial-scale butter from Henry Reynolds' new factory in 1886. It won't be many years before he realises that opportunity beckons in the green pastures near Newstead. His Martangi Creamery already sends cream 20 kilometres to Pukikura Butter Factory, how much more cream might be carted to another butter factory closer to home? It begins with having to upgrade a creamery in the quiet of the community at Newstead, in the hinterland of Hamilton. In 1888 it begins to produce butter. In a flurry of expansion he commissions creameries and skimming stations across Waikato to fulfil his factory's demand for cream. In 1896, Henry Reynolds sells all his interests in the dairy industry, including the Angkor brand name, to the New Zealand Dairy Association. While farmers still cart milk to the Matangi Creamery, some cream goes over to Henry Reynolds' established butter factory at Pukekura. To ensure continuity of cream supply, Henry Reynolds commissions building a network of creameries and skimming stations throughout the Waikato, but in 1896 he sells all his interests in the dairy industry, including his anchor brand name, to the New Zealand Dairy Association. It falls to others to infuse Martangi village with a pioneering spirit of enterprise despite future setbacks, such as the fire gutting Martangi Creamery in 1912. Its actual location on the Martangi site is lost in the mists of time. The Second Factory New Zealand Packing Company, a far-sighted enterprise, had already bought up land beside the railway and the future site of Waikaru's second dairy factory intended for cheese. Its owners in 1900 are W.T. Murray and Company Limited, which plans to make condensed milk there as a product. It promises to appeal to the New Zealanders as being good for our health and convenience having excellent keeping qualities. At Martangi new buildings go up to left and right of the existing cheese factory. Pipes link them to the new boiler on site. It's all go, adapting production to handle Martangi factory's product of Highlander condensed milk. Over the years, the sealing of the tins containing the condensed milk is prone to production problems. It lets lots of sticky milk go to waste from leaking tins. It seems something goes awry using the tin plate for the process. Financially, losing sales from so many tins to faulty seals on the production line can't continue. W.T. Murray & Company sells the business. Martangi Factory is vested in Martangi Cheese Company, a small cooperative with just 15 suppliers at the time. The company needs new ideas to carry it into the future. A South Island company, already producing condensed milk from its factory at Underwood, near Invercargill, negotiates successfully a deal to buy the ailing Matangi company. The new owners, Milk Preserving Works, has a brilliant engineer, William Sim. They trust he'll find out how to sort out the machines. He sets to work, looking for the floor in the soldering that, rather than seal the tins, lets them leak. William Sim later invents what is described only as an automatic contrivance as a solution. It's an impressive success without any soldering, capping cans at the rate of over one a second it might realistically top 17,000 condensed milk cans a day in 1913 in the South Island factory. We're unsure if the company ever installs the new process at Matangi factory. William Sim goes on to patent his device here and across the Commonwealth essentially transforming canning to the present day, one of many inventions to come out of New Zealand dairy history. With such technical success to overcome the canning problem, why wouldn't the firm of W.T. Murray & Company carry on? In the thick of the Second World War, production stops. Now, under receivership, Both its Matangi and Underwood factories attract a new owner who is taking over the Highlander brand. It's the challenge that New Zealand Milk Products Company takes on, getting its factories going again, even before the Second World War ends. Matangi factories focusing on cheese manufacture. In 1938, it's taken over by Nestle, who register Nestle Highlander as a trade name. The third factory. In 1900, the New Zealand Dairy Association built a butter factory at Martangi, led by Arthur Furze. Around that time, it's also running factories that Henry Reynolds founded around the North Island. It's unclear where that Martangi butter factory was, possibly in the same area as where the NZDA later builds its cheese factory. The fourth factory. The New Zealand Dairy Association builds its cheese factory on the opposite side of the road to the New Zealand Packing Company's building, premises serving many purposes. When it's no longer a cheese factory, it's where Glaxo employees go to live in the workers' hostel. It later becomes the Children's Play Centre, then returns to its role as a hostel. the 5th factory. (music) Investigating the history of the Glaxo building is ongoing. It's extraordinarily interesting so far and led to some really exciting finds. For argument's sake We had no idea that there'd been an earlier dairy factory on the site before the Glaxo factory. We're even more surprised when we get a photo of this early factory and realize that it's there, still on site. More surprises follow with the discovery of not another one, but of three factories, making a total of four factories in Matangi before the main Glaxo building constructed between 1917 and 1919. Once built, the Glaxo building becomes a milk powder store and, over many years, used for other things. On some drawings, it's labelled, ''Processed Cheese'' Others remember it as a lunchroom, a gym, and as a billiards room. To fully fathom how this structure fits into the farming scene, we need to go to the man whose business acumen made it all feasible, Joseph Edward Nathan, Living in the dairy farming district of Manawatu at Budneythorpe between Palmerston North and Fielding. In the late 1800s, dairy farming is not a standalone option. Most farmers would keep a few dairy cows to supply the needs of themselves and their families. Anything extra would be sold or bartered at the local store. It all changes in 1882 when the first refrigerated frozen New Zealand carcasses reach London. All but one carcass ends the three months voyage in fresh condition, a new way of export opening opportunities for dairy production. Farmers could move their produce not only around the country, but around the world as well. Dairy farming goes from a way of life to a way of living, accessible and profitable. From then on, dairy factories begin to dot the landscape. Most of these factories are small, dealing with only 10 to 20 farms in close vicinity, as at Martangi. the beginning. Such small factories, built hurriedly to be on the booming dairy industry, are of historic importance but lack architectural or cultural merit. Quick to seize initiative, Joseph Nathan early on sees the advantage of refrigerated shipments of dairy produce. So he builds or buys shares in 17 creameries in Manawatu and shares in some dairy factories. With his sons, Joseph delves into how to make dried milk. He secures rights to a roller drying process for drying milk in 1904. It all goes wrong to begin with, but undeterred, the Nathans remedy their process, obtaining their own patents for the improved process. Their makino factory becomes the first in New Zealand to produce dried milk, which it continues to do for 70 years. They are targeting those growing markets serving cities in England where fresh milk isn't otherwise readily available. New Zealand imported dried milk offers an hygienic alternative for baby food. Their process involves rollers conveying milk sprayed onto their hot surface to then be scraped off as a steam-heated cylinder rotates. It's virtually a new food for the very young. The Nathans decide on Glaxo being the name for their new baby food. Yet its success as a product is slow to take off. So then Glaxo Baby Book comes out in 1908 with instant success. Nurses representing Nathan field anxious mother's calls seeking advice and assurance. By 1922, a million copies of the Baby Book are in print making Glaxo a household name for over half a century. Personalised mail from Glaxo goes out to doctors, personal visits arranged, and birth notices are used to mail the mothers. The Advertising World magazine, published in 1913, states, It's the most successful form of advertising of the present day, Seven years ago, Glaxo was known among a very small section of the community. Today, it's no exaggeration to say every mother knows about Glaxo. It's by accident Glaxo comes up with the concept of direct marketing. By then, Glaxo Builds bonny Babies is the slogan all New Zealanders recognise. Not only mothers, many of us are, in fact, Glaxo Babies, and our first solids, Variks, another Nathan product. Joseph Nathan had decided to move back to London in 1890, leaving his sons David and Fred Nathan in charge of Joseph Nathan and company. Joseph's regarded as being a bit of a socialite, and in New Zealand not all that he desired. Justifying the move on the basis that Europe needs Nathan's product, Joseph proposes they start up the English marketing division of Glaxo and get the product accepted throughout Europe as well as in New Zealand. Hence, Joseph Nathan and Company Limited is registered in London in 1899, 26 years after it's first formed in New Zealand. The trade name Glaxo is registered in 1906. In 1912, Joseph Nathan dies, leaving the London side of the business for his cousin Louis Nathan to take charge. David Nathan is appointed chairman of the New Zealand Enterprise and Fred Nathan appointed New Zealand director. Truly a family business. (laughs) With World War I tensions mounting, the London offices of Glaxo had insisted New Zealand should raise and broaden production, taking account of Glaxo's success as a supplement for soldiers. Supplies from the Bunnythorpe base aren't guaranteed. Other supply markets must be explored. The North Island main trunk line, opened since 1908 between Auckland and Wellington, improves transport of farm production in the Waikato. It's to here that Joseph, Nathan and company decide to expand. And would welcome you to join us in next week's episode that's drawn from the writings of father and son, Harry and Andrew Mowbray.
1: Ciccaro, Eddie Carno It's the craziest when you doodle With a doodling song Take it softer, Harry Even softer, p Say you love me with a doodling song
2: et Charles Dumont, non, je ne regrette rien. Non, rien de rien.
0: Non, je ne regrette
2: rien. Ni le bien. Mes plaisirs, je n'ai plus besoin de balayer mes amours avec l'ordre émolo, balayer pour toujours. Je repars à zéro. Non, rien de rien. Non, je ne regrette rien.